This is Gil Manser from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers. Today's show is a special tie-in with the upcoming Martin Luther King holiday featuring the historic memoir and mystery writer Waits Taylor, Jr. Born in Birmingham, Alabama, Waits Taylor, Jr. spent his formative years growing up in the segregated South, but now lives in Santa Rosa. After earning a degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Alabama, he spent over four decades in the aviation industry and management consulting, and is now an author, poet, and playwright. His first book, Alphonse Musha's Slav Epic, An Artist's History of the Slavic People, was published in 2008 and was followed by Literary Ramblings, a chapbook of poetry and short stories. His next book was the award-winning historical memoir, Our Southern Home, Scottsboro to Montgomery to Birmingham, The Transformation of the South in the 20th Century. And his latest book is the first of a mystery series set in the Deep South in the middle of the 20th century, featuring the white homicide detective Joe McGrath and the black private eye Sam Rucker. It's called Kiss of Salvation. Waits, I am pleased to welcome you to Word by Word. Well, thank you very much, Gil. It's an honor to be here. Before we, we begin, I want to explain to our listeners that we will occasionally be using the historically accurate terms whites and blacks or coloreds to refer to Caucasians and African Americans as we talk about life in the segregated South. Wait, since I had the opportunity to read both of your newest books over the last couple of days, I couldn't help but notice how some of the real-life characters and events you describe so well in your historical memoir, Our Southern Home, are mirrored in the fictitious characters and events surrounding the murders of black prostitutes in Kiss of Salvation. That's correct, Gil. You, you picked up on that very well, and you read the books back-to-back. Back. I did, yes. So you had that advantage. Most of the people who have read both books, it's been over a period of time, and I haven't had that particular comment. But right. There are characters mirrored in the uh, fictional murder mystery that are taken from real-life characters, but the way their tor- story is told in the fictional book is certainly different than their mm-hmm. real-life story, mm-hmm. and they're named differently, of course. In Our Southern Home, you kind of use your dad as the, uh, what we'll call the catalyst of, of witness to, a, to history? Well, yes, I suppose that's the keystone. Uh, I actually see it a little broader than that. Um, the subtitle, Scottsboro to Montgomery to Birmingham, uh, there are three characters that I consider the tying arch through the, the uh the story I tell. One is Clarence Norris, who was one of the nine Scottsboro boys in the uh, terrible events that took place in the 1930s and continued really until the death of the boys because they were never fully exonerated from the crimes while they were alive. Uh, Secondly, Rosa Parks, to do with Montgomery and the Montgomery bus boycotts, which... uh, were the seminal event that started the modern civil rights movement. It came to be led by Martin Luther King, Jr., who stepped forward Mm -hmm. at that moment and became the charismatic leader and speaker that we know so well. And thirdly was my father, Waits Taylor, Sr., who 
became, during the Scottsboro events, the executive secretary of the Alabama-Scottsboro Committee, a group of prominent liberal Alabamians who were trying to ensure the Scottsboro boys got a fair trial. Mm -hmm. And I came across my dad's involvement in this while I was writing a more conventional memoir, and then that's when I changed it to what is in our southern home now. Yeah. And the other coincidence of fact is that on March 25, 1931, the day the Scottsboro Boys event started, all three of these young people were 18 years old. And so I tied their life stories together as a tying ribbon through the events of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your dad. Uh, My dad would have been considered a Southern liberal when he was a young man. He was an FDR supporter. Now, when we talk about Southern liberals, we have to put quotation marks around liberal because we're certainly not talking about a liberal in the northeastern United States at that time. Uh, But for the period and the time in the South, he was liberal. Uh, I won't say that he didn't harbor some uh, feelings that blacks were in their proper place, but he was always, and my mother too, very strict in raising us in that we treated all people fairly. Mm -hmm. And one moment that I remember from my childhood, and my mother had to refresh my memory on this before she died. I was probably four or five, I'm not sure. I said something very derogatorily to the black maid that worked for us. Right. Uh, My mother didn't spank me often, but I got a good one that day (laughs) and instructed to never treat anyone, black, white, or whatever color, like that. Can I have you read something? Surely. called this the unwritten rules. Oh, yes. Yes. And give it, give us a setup about this. It's well, going to lead into Imagine Maddie. The, this is uh, from our southern home, the narrative history of the South that I wrote. Uh, let me read it. I think it's somewhat descriptive in itself. The unwritten rules. In the years of my youth, and that I'm talking about myself, The dark veil of segregation hung heavy over Birmingham and the South. There was no escaping the shroud's suffocating effects. It mattered not whether you were black or white, rich or poor. The insidious veil clung to all aspects of daily life like a shirt to a sticky back on a hot, humid day. Of course, the black population was a direct target and was a, was the target and direct recipient of this overt form of social manipulation and control. How did people function in this stifling atmosphere on a day-to-day basis? There is or there was a set of unwritten rules governing the daily relationships between blacks and whites. The written rules were everywhere. White-only signs, colored-only signs, separate schools, separate churches, 
separate restaurants, separate toilets, separate drinking fountains, separate ticket booths, separate waiting rooms, separate theater seating, separate seating on public transportation, poll taxes to inhibit blacks from voting, and so on and on. In spite of all this, the unwritten rules allowed life to proceed in a more reasonable fashion, although certainly not a fair one. The unwritten rules were generally convoluted and certainly unspoken to avoid a head-on collision with the written rules. I didn't then, and I don't now, know all the unwritten rules. I'm sure many were so obtuse that I never even recognized them. Right. Yes. We're going to talk a little bit about your grandmother and and uh, the woman who worked for her and for your own mother. Yes, little, Ma- Maddie bit. Ruth. Maddie Rucker. Ruth. Yep. Yes. And uh, that'll make it a more, you know, I guess, personal perspective. But let's put this in a larger context. Okay. Let's talk about Alabama and the Deep South. I'm talking. Remember, we're li- we're talking to people who are younger who did not live through this era sure. and don't. Remember the time particularly, um, who were maybe unaware to some extent how insidious the segregation was. Yes, it's. Uh, I'm sure the younger generation, even my children, certainly my grandchildren, do not understand it. I hope by reading books like mine and others in the the educational system, they will become aware of it or more aware of it. I'll give you a good example of uh, that, Gil. When I, in in 2011 and 12, I did two or three book tours in Alabama on our southern home. And let me say first that I was very well received wherever I went. I received no negative comments. In fact, most of them were very positive, drew very large crowds generally. Uh, At the Rosa Parks uh, Museum in Montgomery, I had well over 120 people in the audience. Mm -hmm. Just just a stunning, stunning day. Anyway, uh, two or three of those sessions were at college and universities, one at the University of Alabama, two at the uh, University of South Alabama. Two times, and the audiences in what were now fully integrated schools were, were quite mixed, black and white alike, uh, young students and some professors, etc. And in two cases, at the end, after uh, the discussion was formally over, a couple of black students came up to me, and I'm paraphrasing, but they said something to me like, Mr. Taylor, I didn't realize how bad it was. Mm. The first time I was asked that by a young African-American, it really threw me back on my feet. I I didn't literally react that way, but I had to think about it. And I said, yes, it it was. And I said, understand, uh, it has changed dramatically from the time I was a child and when your parents were children 
to what we have today. There's still much to be done. But later reflecting on it, I realized that these kids I was talking to, black and white alike, who were 18, 20 years old, that I was talking to them about events that occurred 50, 60, Ancient 70 history. years ago. Right. And I thought about myself at that age and things that were happening that long before I was that age was uh, just the turn of the twentieth century mm-hmm. into World War One. Well, at that age, I knew of them, but I had no visceral connection to it. Right. So, uh, I can only say to the listening audience, and I hope some young people are: the world has changed in that context, but. There's still an abundant racism in this country, as we've so vividly seen of late and continue to see. And my state of Alabama is still very conservative, solidly Republican. That's another story. It used and to be the Dixiecrats. My, it used to be – well, it, initially it was the Democrats, right. the Southern Democrats, who were certainly conservative, and we know what Southern politicians did in Washington, did all they could to keep the segregated South segregated until uh, uh, President Lyndon Johnson, finally at the prodding of Martin Luther King and many others in the Civil Rights Movement, pushed the passage of first the Civil Rights Act in this sh- in 1964, 50 years ago this year, the Voting Rights Act. And just coming out this week is a new film, Selma, mm-hmm. about the marches from mm-hmm. Selma to Montgomery led by Martin Luther King. Right. It's caused a bit of controversy. A over bit of the, a dust-up yeah. of how they've uh, portrayed LBJ. LBJ was a very complicated man. Some of the historians I've heard talk about it feel that he was uh, misrepresented in the film. Uh, I haven't seen the film yet, so I can't personally respond. Uh, but LBJ was a Southerner. Texas. And from Texas. Right. And uh, there's some things that are ingrained in your psyche. And uh, there's different points of view in a way to tell a story. And uh, I can't wait to see Selma so Mm -hmm. I can draw my own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because, again, it's been made by someone of the younger generation, we'll say, who wasn't there at the time, doesn't remember what happened on, you know, on a daily basis on TV. No, that's correct, yes. I'm not sure, you know, one of the things that happens in your book is your your, – presentation of some of the horrific events that occurred in different cities in the South when um, nonviolent protesters would would form as as marchers and, you know, basically confront someone at a bridge or a doorway or um, just in the downtown area where the the sit-ins were going on and how they – the politicians and the police at the time reacted with such force not realizing, of course, that the TV cameras were running. And we can look and see these, you know, now grainy black and white footage of that time. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was in – as we were eating our dinners, that's what we saw on TV. And that yes. formed, you know, many people's opinions of, and changed many people's minds about things. 
Oh, there's no doubt about that, Gil. In the in 1963, when Martin Luther King uh, led the uh, protest marches in Birmingham, mm-hmm. uh, it was the images on TV of the children being hosed, the dogs being used, and other things that was an awakening moment, I think, for mm-hmm. the country. And beyond that, of course, other awful things happened in the following year when the, the two young white men from uh, up north and the young African-American from Mississippi were murdered. Right. Cheney and uh, Schwerner and uh, I'm losing the third name. I don't know if you can think of it. But... Uh, and it was after that event that the Voting Rights Act was passed in '64. Right. right, culmination of, I guess you will call moral pressure. Certainly, moral pressure, no doubt about it, and uh, and in a sense, uh, because of the the upheaval it was causing, economic pressure. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I'm gonna get a little southern on you. <laughs> it don't matter whether you're a southern businessman or a northern businessman. You don't like that. Right. <laughs> well, I want to bring something that I, I saw in the paper yesterday, um, which is a story about Platt Williams, who anyone who was in you know the peace and justice mm-hmm. uh, movement and uh, worked with the NAACP locally probably knew. He worked as uh, – I met him first uh, in the paint department at Sears where he was the manager. <laughs> but I then you know, came to know him as the, you know, the head of the, the local NAACP and he was one of the founders of it. But in 19 – let's see if I got the day right. May of 1962, I'll read this. Pete, Platt Williams and six other black men stepped into Santa Rosa's Silver Dollar Saloon and settled onto bar stools to which they knew they were not welcome. I'm sorry, boys, says the owner. You've had too much already. And may, he made it clear that the silver dollar was off limits to black men and women. This is 1962 in downtown Santa Rosa. Well, so the southern influence had tendrils everywhere. Oh, it, 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 it no doubt did. And, you know, I don't know if that individual that ran the uh, saloon was originally from the south or not, but doesn't matter if whether he was or wasn't uh, racism was predominant nationwide mm-hmm. and we saw it in different kinds of forms uh, lynchings were predominant in the south but lynchings took place i shouldn't say all across the country in every state but in many in, in california yes for example yes and uh i never had the pleasure meeting Platt, but I read the article that you're referring to. Sound like a wonderful man. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get a little bit more. Uh, let's go back and dip into our southern home a little bit. Can okay. you read about Madge and Maddie? Now, this is long. You may want to, you may want to take a break mm-hmm. partway through, but it talks about two very important women in your life and yeah. the life of your family. Yeah, and and. Let me introduce the two principals in this. Uh, one is Maddie Ruth Rucker, who was an African-American woman that worked as a maid for our family. And I, I mean that in a broad sense. My grandmother, my mother, and for others in Birmingham. She was very well known. And Madge Buckles Cook 
my maternal grandmother. And uh, she was, to me, a wonderful lady. She, I spent so much time in her house uh, when I was young, and they, those are warm memories. But let me read this. It'll give you some other insights into Madge and Maddie Ruth. Madge and Maddie, Madge and Maddie. In Birmingham, there were two worlds, the blacks and the whites. The north and south side of town, those who used public transit and those who didn't, and families who didn't have help and families who did. White, wealthy, and upper-middle-class families invariably had help, the southern euphemism for the blacks who worked in their homes. While the help included maids, gardeners, chauffeurs, and cooks, it was the maids who made up the large core of this workforce. Maddie Ruth Rucker was one of those maids. Madge Buckles Cook, my maternal grandmother, whom I always call Nanny, was a fascinating woman, but very much an unreconstructed Southerner. Nanny and her first husband and my grandfather, Samuel Dawson, separated in 1930. Nanny then had to forego the use of help as she struggled to support herself and her two daughters. Her second marriage to Doc Cook in 1942, allowed Nanny to again practice the time-honored Southern woman's, white woman's tradition, and some would say privilege, of having help. From age 5 to age 22, I visited Nanny frequently in her red-brick Birmingham home. There was always a buzz of activity about the house concerning her antique and oriental rug business. She frequently had either a maid or a young black man to assist in the constant arrival, rearrangement, and departure of furniture, pieces, and rugs. It was during these years that I first observed Nanny's attitude and demeanor with African Americans. I don't want to be misunderstood. Nanny was not a mean person, nor did I ever see her directly insult any of her help. However, she was very clear in establishing her position of authority. Her instructions and commands invited, invited no rebuttal. Her body language always invoked an air of superiority, and the black help always entered and exited through the back door. I came to know and appreciate Mattie Ruth over the years during my many visits to Birmingham, when she would frequently be, either, be at either mother's or Nanny's home. As I observed Maddie Ruth's calm demeanor and relationship with my mother and Nanny, it became apparent to me that this maid was becoming a close and valued friend. However, I was very bothered by Nanny's continued superior attitude and racial overtones with Maddie Ruth. At Dad's, at my father, Wade Sr.'s memorial service in 1998, Maddie Ruth sat next to my mother and held her hand during the service. After the service, my wife and I drove Maddie Ruth to her house in a sparsely populated northwest suburb of Birmingham. She and her family lived in a well-kept white wooden frame home on several acres of land. 
Mattie Ruth invited us in, and we met her sister and an elderly aunt who was bedridden and was being cared for by Mattie Ruth. She showed us around the house and in the dining room. There, there was an upright piano. On the wall above the piano, there was a large bulletin board covered with photographs. I walked over to look closer at the photo, photographs, which included pictures of Mattie Ruth's family and friends, and there near the center of the board were several pictures of our family, Nanny, my mother and father, and me and my brothers. I looked at Mattie Ruth, and before I even spoke, uh, clearly sensing my surprise, she said, this is all my friends and family, <laughs> including you. I stood quietly fi fighting back tears, now fully realizing, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> fighting back tears at this moment and then, back then too, now fully realizing what a dear friend this woman had become to my family and me. A few days later, I returned to my home in California, still confused and perplexed by the relationship between Nanny and Mattie Ruth. I called my mother and explained my dilemma to her, but she had no ready answers. I finally asked Mom if she thought Mattie Ruth would be upset if I called her and asked her about their relationship. Mom said she was sure Mattie Ruth would be comfortable talking about Nanny. So with some trepidation, I finally called Mattie Ruth. After the usual greetings, I said, Mattie Ruth, this is hard for me, but I've always been bothered by the way Nanny treated you. You were always so polite and helpful to Nanny. I never heard you utter a harsh or unkind word, but it seems she was frequently nasty to you with her constant demands. Mattie Ruth do this, Mattie Ruth do that, Mattie Ruth come here right now. Am I wrong? <laughs> Mattie Ruth was silent for a few moments before saying, Judge, using my childhood nickname, which put me on notice that what was to come was of utmost importance. You have to understand, your grandmother loved me, and I loved your grandmother. She offered no other explanation, and I asked for none. I felt like the young child she had carefully chosen to address, having just received a kind but firm reprimand for tiptoeing in the area, into the area of the unwritten rules that governed day-to-day -day life and relationships in the segregated South. Excuse me. That breaks no, me thank up you. I thank read you for obviously sharing yeah. uh, information and stories that have been emotional concomitant, which I think our listeners appreciate. We're going to take a break. You are listening to Word by Word, Conversation with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where our conversation with the Birmingham, Alabama-born writer Waits Taylor continues after this station break. So stay tuned to hear more from Waits about his historical memoir, Our Southern Home, 
Scottsboro to Montgomery to Birmingham, The Transformation of the South in the 20th Century, and his new mystery novel, Kiss of Salvation, right here on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. We're going to shift a little bit, I think, and, and look at your mystery. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, um, there is a subtext, The Unwritten Rules, um, of, which, of which there's quite a bit of discussion. And before we get into that, I want to talk about another We're set We're not of, on. Are we on tape? Yeah, we're on. Oh, I'm sorry. He's, he doesn't stop. Oh. He just keeps a rolling and edits out. Okay. And one of the things that I noticed, in addition to the segregation between black and white, was the segregation between, I will guess you'll call liberal and conservative, or educated and non-educated. In mm -hmm. other words, college educated. Mm -hmm. um, the characters in your mystery, both the cop, the detective, and Joe McGrath, and the private investigator have gone to university. They, they started in another field, but then they went on to look at criminology. Correct. So immediately, they stand out. Certainly in the police force, Joe McGrath stands out as someone who's an odd duck because mm -hmm. the rest of the people are, may have been in the military or you know, some had background in, in law enforcement in their family, but they've certainly not learned it from you know, professors and books. Um, and when he starts quoting Shakespeare, as he often does, he's just, you know, the professor. Yeah. And, and, and the chief, the police chief and others called him the professor. Right. To his face. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a bad thing. That's just the no. nickname he's mm -hmm. earned. And then um, Joe, I mean, Sam Rucker, uh, who's the private investigator, also has a similar, he was going to leave because he was upset with his uh, AME minister father, um, who was a hellfire and damnation preacher, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pillar of the community, and expected his son to follow in his footsteps. Correct. And uh, as a way of really breaking away from that, he went off to school in the north and um, ended up studying criminology and comes back to Birmingham after his father dies, just after graduation. Correct. And that's where he ends up staying and sets up a, a, a kind of an odd practice of being a black man in a white town where he basically does services for the black community. And they're, you know, simple private eye kind of stuff, you know, mm -hmm. uh, finding out who's, you know, fooling around and divorce proceedings, et cetera, et cetera. But his, he, again, he has the background and the training of being an educated man. And he's able to give and take with Joe Rucker's quotations, you know, quite well. Yeah, he's, he's I've, I've, in a sense, I've tried to, to build these two characters in a, in a parallel sense. Mm -hmm. uh, one is white, one is black. They both come from uh, uh, middle-class families for that period of time, either black or white, uh, and had uh, different upbringings. But both have excellent educations. Joe has a Bachelor of Science in, uh, I mean, a... a, a, a BA. BA, yes, thank you, in English with a specialization in Shakespeare, which he got 
from his mother who mm-hmm. teaches Shakespeare mm-hmm. at a college in Alabama and uh, then goes on to get a criminology degree while he's teaching high school. Right. And Joe uh, starts on a path to become a minister, uh, gets an undergraduate degree, goes to a seminary, and after a year realizes this is not my path, and goes home to tell his father, and his father basically uh, throws him out of the house. Right, disowns him. He goes to Chicago, gets a degree in criminology, and when his father dies, he has to come back and help his family. And that's where his career is now. Right. And they're both kind of odd ducks in each of their communities. Yes. Um, Sam Joe is a, a Catholic, uh, married, and now separated. His wife has gotten tired of his uh, over-the-top jealousy. Correct. And also his, you know, constantly I'm always on a case and therefore don't have time for you and, you know, my 10-year-old daughter in the book. Yeah. And um, – at the same time, Sam is trying to live a world and a life um, where the church is still important to him, but it's not what it used to be. And he also has the mantle of, you know, hair carrying his father's uh, larger-than-life persona. Correct. So I want I want to talk about them. Can we read from what I call the cop, the P.I., and the barbecue guy? Sure. It's where they meet mm-hmm. together. In a barbecue place, and it tells a lot about the time, the the people, and the and the the sense of place. Yeah, uh, a little background in, into how this meeting came to place or came to be. Uh, the kiss of salvation, the murder m- mystery side of the story, is that uh, black prostitutes are being murdered in downtown Birmingham. And at this point that I'll read to you in a moment, the second murder has already taken place and the black community, to no surprise of anyone, is not cooperating at all with the cops. Who would, uh, a black person would never trust the Birmingham police at that period of time. And Joe convinces the police chief, and it's a difficult sell, that they need to use Sam Rucker, that's the black private eye, as a, uh, I guess you'd call it a consultant, if you will, in today's language, to help them. And he can work in the black community where Joe and others can't to try to uncover some leads to help figure out what the heck is going on. So this is the first time they meet, and they meet in a barbecue joint 30, 15 miles north of Birmingham, which is run by an African-American because they want a safe place to meet, and Sam knows the owner, and so they go there early in the morning. This is the cop, the PI, and the barbecue guy. When Joe McGrath opened the back door of Willie's, the sweet smell of cooking meat and savory barbecue sauce overwhelmed his senses. To his surprise, Sam Rucker stood in the doorway, waiting for him. A few minutes early, Detective McGrath, I like that. Come on in. The coast is clear right now. People come and people go here all day. Sam and Joe shook hands. 
Sam led Joe into a small room off the hallway. The room had an octagonal table with eight chairs and a single light hanging over the center of the table. A small table in the corner was stacked with ashtrays and glasses. The room reeked of cigarette and cigar odors. They sat side by side at the table. They remained silent for a few moments, trying to size each other up and figure out where all this was going. Joe broke the silence and offered Sam a camel. Thanks, but I don't smoke, Sam said. Wish I could say that. Mind if I do? No. No. Mind if I do, said uh, Sam. No, said Joe. Joe lit up. Well, I'm not sure where to start. We've got a lot to talk about. How about the beginning, Detective McGrath? Yeah, that's good. But Sam, please call me Joe. Joe, I will when it's just you and me alone. Otherwise, it'll be Detective McGrath. Good idea, I suppose. If you lived on my side of the fence, you'd understand. I use Joe in public. Whites and most coloreds would call me uppity. Yeah, you're right, said Joe. I don't live it like you, but I get it. Now let me show you what we know about the murders. Then we talk about then we can talk about how best to work together. Sounds like a reasonable way to start, Sam said. I'm sure I can arrange for us to meet here. Willie's a good guy. You got a day and time in mind? Oh, here we've we've jumped. Uh, they've discussed how they're going to proceed, and now they're. Yeah, I edited a little bit. He's, yeah, you edit, thank you. I see that, and uh, they're st- starting to wrap up. So I'll start that again. Sounds like a reasonable way to start. Sam said, "I'm sure I can arrange for us to meet here. Willie's a good guy. You got a day and time in mind? Want to stay with Wednesday at nine o'clock at Willie's?" <laughs> Okay, I'll talk to Willie before we leave. You want to meet him? Can he be trusted? Sam looked annoyed. Yes, I've known him a long time. We went to school together. I told him why we were meeting. He wants to help us solve these crimes in any way he can. Sure, I'd like to meet him. Don't mean to sound insulting. Just got to be careful. Sam shrugged. Okay, what else? Can you start the interviews this week? Yes, we need to discuss the business arrangement. Dick Oliver and I had to twist Chief Watson's arm, but he finally agreed. I want to be up front with you. After the chief agreed, I told him we'd find a private place to meet. He then said something to me like, God damn right you will. That darky come in my building, you both be out the door. Sam laughed heartily. Well, the chief's certainly living up to his reputation. Willie's it is. And what the hell, the chief doesn't know what great barbecue he's missing. Hey, how about some barbecue? It smells too good. I I didn't have much breakfast. Sure, I'll get Willie. Sam went to the front of the joint and came back with Willie. He was medium height with a barrel chest and a large stomach that looked as if he as if he loved his own barbecue. Dark black, he wore work coveralls and an apron covered with barbecue sauce. His face was round and jovial. Willie, this is Detective Joe McGrath. 
Joe, this is Willie Colson, the best barbecue man in Alabama. The two men shook hands. The two men shook hands. Good to meet you, Detective McGrath. Hope you and Sam catches that man killing those colored girls. Nice to meet you, Willie. We'll catch him. I'm glad Sam's going to help us, and thanks for letting us meet here. Sure, it's quiet now, but you come back tonight, it'll be rocking. There's music and dancing and a lot of good fun. After washing down a meal of pulled pork, ribs, coleslaw, and beans with ice-cold Cokes, the three men went into the parking lot. Joe, you got another car? This car got police written all over it, Sam said. Joe looked chagrin. He realized he should have brought thought about his cop car. Yeah, I got a 42 Plymouth Coupe. It's gray. I'll drive it out here from now on. As Joe backed the car up, he looked out the roll-down window for clearance and heard Willie ask Sam, Can you trust him? Can you trust him? Can you trust him? Absolutely. Good question. Sure enough. You sure know who you can trust and not trust, we think, in your book. Of course, mm. there's surprises along the way. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the The white sheriff is right out of central casting, in a sense, except that he came there to be get that job in an odd way. Correct. You want to tell us about that? Well, he... Uh, it's it's the police chief of Birmingham, uh, the city of Birmingham. He's not the, not the sheriff. I'm but sorry, it's, it's, police chief. Yeah, yeah, right. The county would have had a sheriff, but he was a police chief. His name was Big Bob Watson. He was not a big man. Actually, he was quite small, built like a, a fire plug, a fire hydrant. And uh, he got the name when he was in high school. As a tease, and at first he didn't like it, but then came to live with it and sort of enjoyed it. And his one love was baseball. And uh, he finally ended up moving to Birmingham to try to find some better work. And he'd go see the Birmingham White Barons play as much as he could. And without going into the uh, whole story there, he ends up being hired to uh, broadcast the games. Play-by-play. Play-by-play. And he, he's he got a very southern accent. He speaks in in very poor English, malaprops all the time. <clears throat> but he was a huge hit with the audience, which was a, a largely blue-collar, mm-hmm. and even a, a large number of African Americans listened. Although there were the were the Birmingham Black Barons, they had yeah. You make a reference to that. Yeah. I, I wanted and, to ask about that. Excuse me. So we hear about the broadcast of the Birmingham White Barons baseball team, local baseball team, and then uh, you make reference to the Birmingham Black Barons, and they they must have had a different. Did they go on radio too? I'm not sure if they were announced. They were announced by a <clears throat> a black uh, announcer. Uh, Big Bob Watson certainly wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. The Black Barons played in Birmingham for a number of years, and they were a very good ball club and played in the uh, Negro Leagues in the South. And uh, they played in the same field the White Barons did, Rickwood Field, which is still is in, 
intact, and it's the oldest surviving baseball, professional baseball field in the United States. Hmm. But in any case, uh, they played, and in 1948, a young fellow from a suburb of Birmingham called Fairfield, at 17 years old, started playing for the Black Barons. A fellow named Willie Mays. Mm-hmm. That's where I knew the name from. Yeah. Yeah. And he, of course, went on to great fame and a Hall of Fame and even lives in this area. Mm-hmm. So we got the chief who, well, he's not the chief yet. He's doing the play-by-play no, no, play announcements. you're right. He's doing the play-by-play announcements. And then a local uh, guy. Businessman. We'll Businessman, Stanford Ramsey, who is kind of the behind-the-scenes Machiavellian prince of Birmingham politics is trying to get some other a referendum passed to change the Birmingham City Council method of doing business so he can control it even more. Uh, he's a smart guy, but he's a terrible public speaker in the sense that he speaks in a language that most of the audience he's trying to get in. The voting audience. Voting audience can't comprehend. Right. And he's listening to a, a Watson broadcast a Birmingham Barons baseball game and realizes, this is my man. And he has him for a dinner in a place like Bib Bob Watson's never been in, the downtown club, a great, quiet men's club. And he hires him. And Big Bob does the job so well that after the referendum passes and the existing police chief ret- retires, uh, Stanford Ramsey cajoles the city council to approve Watson as a new police chief, mm-hmm. even though he has zilch police experience. And uh, And so now we have the racist police chief. And if you read both books, you'll see a similarity between uh, Big Bob Watson and uh, Bull Connor. Right. From the I noticed Birmingham the resemblance, days. certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have someone in mind when you were writing about Stanford Ramsey, this, uh, the Machiavellian prince you refer to him as, the man behind the scenes who controls everything in, in Birmingham, at least in the white side of Birmingham. I don't know if you remember the name James Simpson in Our Southern Home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that's, what, that's the parallel. That's the parallel. Yeah. He, 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 he operated as basically the same level as we see uh, Stanford Ramsey in the murder mystery. Right. Now, the money in Birmingham came from... Uh, pig iron steel is that right? Pig iron and steel, yeah, yeah. and the supporting industries right. wrapped around that, and the mining industry. And I should have mentioned at the start that this takes place. This murder mystery starts in since nineteen forty eight. Uh, forty seven. Forty seven. Forty seven. Right. And so um, it's a different time and place, which is one of the things that that makes it so interesting, is because things are different, and they're in in many different ways. Now. One of the things I noticed in your opening, um, well, I guess you say chapter, your opening events, mm-hmm. when we we first meet the uh, the police inspector, is how 
even-handed he is when he's talking to, doesn't matter who he's talking to. Mm -hmm. he's, he maintains a, a continuity of respect, I guess I would say, for each person. Mm -hmm. And I think they pick up on that, even though he is a, as you mentioned, police. Mm -hmm. So either black or white, uh, he talks to them essentially the same way, which was quite unusual. Uh, very unusual. And uh, y you need to know a little more of his backstory mm -hmm. to understand that. His f he, he was b born and raised in a little town called Montevallo, Alabama, about 30 miles south of Birmingham. And there's a woman's college there, which was all woman at the time. Mm -hmm. Today it's a integrated school with the, both in color and in gender. Uh, and his father was raised there in, in a very well-to-do middle-class family and uh, did undergraduate work at the University of Alabama, but then went to Boston to do his law school. Mm -hmm. And he met a young lady while he was there who was getting her master's degree in English literature. Her name was Elizabeth. They got married when they graduated in Boston, moved back to Montevallo, and that's where Joe was born. And uh, both of them worked hard to raise uh, Joe uh, as they were raised with uh, taking the blinders off and mm -hmm. seeing the world as it was and treating people equally. His father was tragically murdered when Joe was uh, 12, 13 years old. And his mother, Elizabeth, basically— Well, not just murdered. He was executed. He, he was executed. Yes, he was. He was defending a black man for murder in the local courts in uh, Shelby County. And uh, we don't know in the book because they never found the killers who did it. But it was obviously related to the fact that he was representing this guy. Mm-hmm. Even as a young man, Joe makes a pledge to himself that someday he's going to try to find the guys that murdered his father. I assume that's going to be in a sequel. It's in it's in work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, but Elizabeth raises him even more liberally, if you will, because of her background, being from the Massachusetts, Massachusetts, yeah. Yeah. and also imbues in him. This love of Shakespeare, which carries through his life and his interests. And she's teaching that at the Women's she College. She teaches that at the Women's right. College. Yeah, that's correct. Right. So you do these characters talk to you, speak to you? Oh, yes. Yes. Because when you talk about him here even, you know, well, he did this and he came from there and he was this. Yeah. You've got the full backstory, which is very obvious in the book. I mean, it's their wealth. Full, you know, fully fledged mm -hmm. characters. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I struggled with how to do the backstories because I, I read certain m murder mystery writers uh, just don't do backstory, or they do what little bit is needed, just embedded in the regular story as it's rolling along. And uh, I just felt the way I was. Uh, seeing this book and the series that the re both myself and the readers had to have a better sense of who these people were, who mm -hmm. these gents mm -hmm. were. 
And so I, de- I dedicated, as, as you saw, read early in the book, two full chapters to the backstory right. on each of them. And uh, not just to them, but the other some of the supporting some of, characters too. Some of the too. other supporting yes. characters too. That's right. And uh, everyone I've talked to that's read the book uh, said I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So uh, that was satis- that's that was satisfactory for me. But uh, I, I I did it because I felt the story needed it the way I wanted to structure it. Okay, good. So that gives us time for me to ask that wonderful question that I like to do of writers. Yes. Why did you decide to do this? Why did did this aeronautical engineer and consultant say one day I need to not just write a a history, uh, you know, certainly the the story of the the Slav or Czech painter is not in the same realm as writing a mystery about the, you know, the Deep South in the late 40s. Yeah, it's... uh it's uh, there's no straightforward answer. I, I got I got I. Uh, this may sound pejorative, but I think at least our elementary school education and whatnot, when I was a young fella, especially in in things like literature and English and so forth, certainly was more structured, but uh, came out of it with a good sense of. Of writing, of grammar, of spelling, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and through my professional career, I had to write a lot professionally, mm-hmm. especially as a consultant. I mean, v- huge reports. Uh, so I'll be, I became a writer as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And uh, that's where I guess I really first started honing my skills. And people always said I was a good writer in in that genre. And the reports were well received by the clients. Um, and I always wanted to do some more writing, and I actually started writing small memoir-type vignettes 20 years ago, mm-hmm. some of which still exist in our southern home. And then after my consulting work ended, I started writing seriously. And the MUCA book came out of a trip I made to the Czech Republic in 2006, and at the same time I was working on Our Southern Home, which was Uh published in 2011, and then I wanted to do a book of fiction. I never had. I decided to do the murder mystery. I wasn't sure I could handle it. Could I develop a full plot out of my head? Could Mm -hmm. I develop the characters? Could I write dialogue? Well... It's up to the reader to decide how well I did it, but I did it. Right. <laughs> and enjoyed right. the hell out of it. <laughs> I think our readers are going to enjoy it too. It's not um, – what, what's the word I'm going to say? It's not a canned formulaic mystery. I don't think so. No. No. I don't think so either. Yeah. And I think that's good. It's a different kind of a of a thought process behind it. It's a sociological mystery in a sense. Yes, absolutely. Well, let me ask you one question okay. before we run out of time. Did you put your finger on the killer before he was released? Well, I did, revealed? but there were you gave us clues along the okay, way, and I kept it. adding them up. Okay, well, yeah. you, you did well because most readers haven't. Ah, really? Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Challenge audience. So there's the audience <laughs> challenge out there. Now you said I said uh, I said the wrong way of pronouncing the man. You know the Czech uh, artist Alphonse Muka. Muka. Yes. Okay. I knew him. Um, let's see where did I first see him? Because I got a book about creating. 
Snow White, the Walt Disney. Yes. And apparently he was inspirational in some of those original drawings for that movie. Yeah, well, he he was he was one of the seminal cre- uh, originators of the Art Nouveau style in the latter part of the nineteenth century and early. What they 20th called the um, um, leaded glass, the you know. Yes. The, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and some some even call style. it pretty girls with vines. Some of the yeah, well, there, he does he does paint a lot of but, pretty girls. In fact, I was surprised you didn't have him on the wall of that uh, that room where we visit. You remember with the the man that has the paintings on each side ooh, of the fireplace. Ooh, that, that's a great idea. I wish yeah. I'd talked to you yeah, earlier. Well, you can change it out for the next. And thank moment. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have been listening to word-by-word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, with an interesting and informative chat with Birmingham, Alabama-born writer Waits Taylor, Jr. and his historical memoir, Our Southern Home, Scottsboro to Montgomery to Birmingham, The Transformation of the South in the 20th Century, and his new mystery novel, Kiss of Salvation, the first of hopefully several more. Trilogy. Right. Our broadcast engineer for today's show is Jesse Fancushen. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. Our support staff is Wendy Nicholson. And I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to tune in to a special Valentine's Day-themed word-by-word show from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, February 8th, right here on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Until then, I suggest that either of Waits Taylor's books, Our Southern Home, or Kiss of Salvation would be appropriate reading to honor Martin Luther King's January 19th birthday. <laughs>